Hey everybody, it's your host Celia here. I wanted to go ahead and launch our intro and outro music this week, but unfortunately, mental health be a real struggle and I was not able to make that happen. But I am excited to announce that it is in the works. As I promised, this podcast will only keep getting better and better, so stay tuned and we will have that music ASAP. In the meantime, may I recommend that you get yourself in the mental space for this episode by going ahead to whatever streaming service you use and looking up Victor's piano solo from The Corpse Bride. Guaranteed, it will do the trick. You're welcome. Hello, honey crowd, and welcome back to our second episode. I'm very, very excited to be joining you here in the spookiest of all months, October. It has long been one of my favorite times of the year, especially because Halloween, I mean, duh, arts person, kind of goes hand in hand. Um, But I have always been one, if I can get a little personal here for a moment, who has just loved the performative nature of Halloween. Like, I'm one of those who builds her own costume pieces and paints and sews and spends six hours doing makeup every Halloween. I always have been. My mom used to, I think it was a love-hate challenge that she had with my desire for unique costumes every year growing up. Um, But thankfully she indulged me, you know, fantastic mom, fantastic imagination. We made that work. And here we are now, however many years later, and I thought we should, in case you missed the Instagram post, be a little bit uh, thematically appropriate this month. And so I tried to get in a little bit of true crime, murder, and, well, more death. So stay tuned for the thematically appropriate content throughout the month here of October, our grand spooky season. And let's go ahead and begin with true crime, probably the best known story of art crime in the history of art thievery. That's right, we're talking about the robbery of the Isabella Gardner Museum today, happening in Boston in 1990, possibly the most infamous and kind of technically confusing robberies there ever was. Having done all of the research and watched the Netflix documentary and all of that, and really getting a deep sense of the story, I actually believe the best place for us to start is in the present day, and then we'll work our way backwards. So what we know here and now, there was between 500 and $600 million worth of artwork stolen. Of course, that's an estimate based on what similar works by similar artists are going for in various um, purchases today. So it's, it's very market-based, but definitely a, a significant amount of money and a considerable range. According to the Isabella Gardner-Stewart website themselves, it is the, quote, single largest property theft in the world, end quote, at least the largest known one, taking a total of 81 minutes to remove the artworks. The biggest impact of this case was actually to shine a light on art theft and how really surprisingly common 
and or complex it can be. Art theft was a problem that until that point, and even today to some degree, is largely kept quiet due to the embarrassment surrounding the fact of having been stolen from. And in most cases, definitely not that of the gardener, but in most cases, a certain lack of theatricality and mystery that would fail to capture the public's attention in a way that might excuse the museum from having been robbed at all. Now, of course, that can sound very silly and very prideful, you know, not reporting a robbery or theft because it makes a prestigious institution look bad. But on the other hand, you've got to consider a little bit from that institution's point of view. Now, I'm not saying they're doing the right thing, but the job by definition of a museum is stewardship meaning that the job of a museum is literally to hold on to its various objects and paintings and you know whatever the case may be depending on the type of museum for the public good for the public use as a a sort of library of resources there's actually not very much difference between library and museum but we'll get to that a different day so It is essentially the same thing as anyone else who would have to admit that they failed to do their job. Nobody wants to do that. And so, if it's possible, they, like many of us, may not. Another one of the many reasons for this case's fame is that it is still unsolved today. The museum is offering a $10 million reward for information leading to the recovery of the stolen works, still is, that is, and the FBI, as well as the U.S. Attorney's Office, are still involved in the proceedings. Now, the statute of limitations has passed, so they all promise that no charges will follow the return of of the works. They just simply want to see that the artworks are returned safely and in good condition. Now, there is a really special element to this request, and that is that according to NewEngland.com, as well as several other sources, including that Netflix documentary, Isabella Stewart Gardner's will, the woman who began the museum, prohibited the museum from acquiring replacements for any stolen paintings. So they have the empty frames that these works were stolen right out of, as placeholders who stand as symbols of hope for their return, the artworks' return, but there's really no way for the museum to otherwise replace what it has lost. Okay, so what happened? On March 18th of 1990, a vehicle with two men dressed as policemen pulls up to the side door, aka the employee entrance of the museum building. At 1.24 a.m., they knock. They claim that they have gotten reports that the St. Patrick's Day celebrations surrounding the city of Boston have become a disturbance to the museum and they request entry to double-check that there is, in fact, no disturbance. The guard on duty, you know, does his best to explain that he and his other 
colleague have been doing their rounds. There's, they've not seen anything. Nothing's really wrong. But these are officers, and so the guard on duty decides to break protocol by agreeing to let them in. Then, according to the guard's own statements, these fake officers, through their quote-unquote checks in on everything, get the guard to willingly step away from his watch desk. Then he and the other security guard are tied up by these fake officers and cuffed, and they're put into the basement. The Smithsonian articles note specifically that the victims were duct taped to a pipe and a workbench. And at that point, the infamous, this is a robbery line was uttered. The thieves with some degree of expertise then immediately go after the security systems, uh, such as alarms and motion sensors. And they did this so thoroughly that there was actually a lot of suspicion at the time that there may have been an inside element to this job because the thieves were not only aware of measures such as motion sensors, but also of paper readouts and other copies of the files of their activities throughout the night. And they took these with them or destroyed them. Ever. They failed to completely disable the motion sensors inside the museum. So there are some movements of theirs that are recorded and some of them are very in line with art theft norms, but others are straight up confusing. For example, these thieves used chisels, screwdrivers, and sharp knives to cut the canvases from the frames. This is notable because it was one of several standout novice slash weird moves. Intact canvases are worth significantly more and are much less likely to suffer damage during transport. So this indicates to us that the thieves, even though they had those 81 minutes, were either in a rush or not completely aware of what they were doing. Now, because of the limited but still functional motion sensors, we do know about where in the museum they were and about when. We know that they were in the Dutch room, for example, where the best known works were stolen. Six of them, including one etching and one bronze gu, which is a beaker of Chinese origin. They were also in the short gallery, where five Degas drawings and a bronze eagle finial, aka a fancy flagpole topper, uh, were stolen, and a Manet work was stolen from the blue room. The thieves left with the 13 artworks 81 minutes later, at 2.45 in the morning, taking two trips to move all of the pieces out to their vehicle. Now, I gotta admit, when I read that, that they took two trips and they cut the canvases out of the frames, the inner 12-year-old boy in me really came out strong and said, Wimps. Lame. What absolute turds. But that could also be just the knowledge that, you know, they took their time and they didn't even do it right. <sighs> but what can you really expect, I guess? In any case, a complete list of the work stolen goes as such. Vermeer's The Concert, Rembrandt's A Lady and Gentleman in Black, Rembrandt's The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, Rembrandt's Self-Portrait, Govart Flank's 
landscape with an obelisk, a Shang Dynasty Chinese bronze beaker from between 1200 and 1100 BCE, Degas La Sorte de Pelage, Degas Cortege au Environs de Florence. I did not take French, I took Spanish. I'm doing my best. Please don't laugh at me. Degas Three Mountain Jockeys, Degas Program for an Artistic Soiree, Charcoal on White Paper. Degas program for an artistic soiree, less finished charcoal on buff paper, mayonnaise, chaise, tortini, and a Napoleonic eagle finial. Oof. And back to the story. Those security guards remained handcuffed in that position in the basement until the police arrived at 8.15 a.m. with the morning shift guards. The a.m. guards had actually arrived prior to that, but they became worried when the overnighters didn't answer their multiple doorbell rings. The police, upon arrival, entered through the same employee-slash-side door, did a sweep after seeing some suspicious damages to the security room, and then found the bound guards in the basement. Pretty much immediately, all the international emergency notices go out, and they bring in the big guys, the experts, the FBI, and all of the CSI. The museum is in fact closed for three days afterwards for crime scene investigation activities, and while the FBI, local police, so on and so forth, figure out as much as they possibly can about how this happened. So we've been through the what of this crime, and now we're going to look at how the impossible was possible and the more unusual aspects of this crime. So, how? Unfortunately, the security flaws that were due to the museum's financial disrepair were publicly known and made the museum a sitting duck. Everything from electrical problems to technical security problems and even design slash architectural flaws, which would allow for easier robberies, such as windows that were high, you know, very close to the ground, open roofing, such, just made the museum really low-key insecure. Now, there's no indication of whether the thieves knew that at that time the museum had no theft insurance, But that could have been a factor as well, because that would be one less agency, the insurancy one, hunting these thieves down. Now, the museum had no theft insurance because of the aforementioned uh, will caveat prohibiting the museum from acquiring replacements for stolen paintings. But also, the premiums would have just been insanely high, what with all of those Degas and other big names that I just mentioned. These are very valuable artworks, and as great as insurance would have been, it simply was not situationally feasible. ...was obtained from NewEngland.com. Some other methods that these thieves may have used in order to take advantage of the museum in order to pull this thing off would have been potentially to use women scouts or other means of quote-unquote inconspicuous scouting, which would be a contradictorily smart or normal for experts move compared to the other oddities of this case. Again, things just don't really add up overall in this robbery. Another factor is that generally 
young and inexperienced guards are more common in museums than well-trained and experienced ones. So these thieves could have been taking advantage of the guards who were young and inexperienced that night by choosing this specific time and date for their theft. Circling back around to the weird parts of this case, yes, these thieves stole masterpieces, pieces worth tons, but they actually left the most valuable piece behind. They also avoided John Singer Sargent and other big French names such as Courbet, Delacroix, and Carat. In fact, most of the pieces that were stolen are too famous to sell or even to display, which puts a really confusing limit on the potential motives for this crime. In fact, these chosen works, and I am somewhat proud to admit that I was thinking so when I read that list, uh, indicate to the FBI and to other art historians or experts that these works were chosen for specific interests or for want of specific quote-unquote trophies, not necessarily based on pure market value. Then there's the factor of the third floor avoidance. We know that they did not go up there pretty much at all, and they definitely didn't take anything from it. So the open-ended question has always been, why? What specifically about that third floor kept the thieves away from it? So just to repeat, we have these guys who take two trips, avoid an entire floor of the building, and they still had to cut the works out of the frames? You know, I just want to talk. I would just like to have a conversation. It is this type of hooliganery that gets my blood boiling, I will admit. And then we will circle back to that insider knowledge and also mastery of thieving that was needed to turn off the majority of the camera and computer-based alarm systems to take the paper copy of various readouts and generally leave no trace. Now, the potential solves the whodunit. As I mentioned, because there's no pattern to the works that were stolen or any other clear motive to the crime, that severely limited the investigators in their initial search because they had no way to narrow down where to start searching, especially once no DNA was found on the scene and the prints were found to be unreliable. Unfortunately, these on-duty guards were originally the biggest suspects. There were lots of concerns raised about the, ma the manner in which they were bound, the large time frame that they were left alone, and especially that insider knowledge use in disabling the security systems, as well as the complete knowledge of the museum's layout and potentially even the works' values. All of this knowledge was clearly indicated by the other parts of the crime that we've previously discussed, but again, they were big red flags for investigators. After a few years, the guards were acquitted of all suspicion. Whoever ferreted these works away, unfortunately, did a great job. The suspicion by experts quickly became, because there was just no trace of this work, these works, 
that they were probably transported via crime networks throughout New England, especially, they think, through Connecticut and Philadelphia, but were lost after that. The experts believe that this was probably mob or crime-related, done by experts in stealing, but not particularly art theft. Hence the randomness of the works taken, the mixture of expert and novice moves, so on. And they also suspect that there may have been actually even more people admitted into the museum to help with this theft after the guards were tied up in the basement. Because even though they had 81 minutes and they took two trips, these guys still just, for whatever reason, didn't quite seem to be able to fit the bill of robbing the museum so thoroughly in that time frame. And so even though it happened back in 1990, all of these factors combined meant that even up until 2013, the investigators and experts alike involved in this case really didn't have much to go on and really didn't have much solution to give. There just was very little that could possibly be done based on the lack of evidence, the lack of DNA, so on and so forth. However, Nora McGreevy reports in a Smithsonian article that it, quote, in 2013, the FBI announced that it had identified the two thieves with a, subquotes, high degree of confidence. In 2015, the organization revealed the names of its primary suspects, George Ressfielder and Leonard DiMuzio, two associates of the late mobster Carmelo Merlino. Both resembled police sketches of the criminals and died within one year of the heist, end quote. I suspect that has to do with the whole two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead mentality, but I'm not in the mob, so I really can't say. Other articles that I used as research for this episode note that also in 2015, although it's unclear if the two are connected, public assistance was sought to identify a suspicious man and vehicle seen entering the museum via that security guard door almost exactly 24 hours before the crime and who was again present during the crime. So that may have been in relation to the 2015 FBI reveal of those two primary suspects, but unfortunately I was not able to find anything that confirmed or denied that. There's simply reports that public assistance was sought in 2015 to ID this man and vehicle. If anything, though, this suspicious man and vehicle combination supports the idea that there may have been more than two people involved in this robbery. And finally, there was an Art News article stating that in 2022, a man named Jimmy Marks, who is a convicted bank robber and an associate of two longtime people of interest in this case, Robert Granti and Bobby Donati, reportedly bragged about the crime and hiding the artworks. Now, it's unclear who he bragged to and if he mentioned any of the specific works by name. And unfortunately, like that brief bit in 2015, there's just no further updates on that situation. 
I gotta admit, I'm a little disappointed in uh, in how mm-hmm. open-ended this case still is. Even though it's fun to theorize, I would have loved to know whether the artworks are even still in the United States, if they're intact, if they're across the ocean, because really, the only people who know are the people who know. And I would like to be one of them. I'm sure we all would. And even though that's not necessarily the note that I was hoping to leave it on, that is the note that this case is on. Is it's a big fat question mark where anyone can come up with any conspiracy theory they like. I really do, however, believe in the theories presented by experts that these works were chosen because of personal interest and that these, this job was not done by experts in art theft, but just experts in theft in general because of all of these things that don't line up, things that cause damage to the works that were there, that were taken, so on and so forth. And so I would actually really love to hear back from you guys. Shoot me a DM with your own personal favorite conspiracy theory surrounding the Gardner Museum robbery. And if you happen to find any updates on either that Art News article or that 2015 uh, public assistance notification, please also let me know because I really want to see this thing through. But as a fun little exercise, I thought I would leave you all with a question. If you somehow, and I'm not going to ask questions because snitches get stitches, But if you somehow came into the possession of a work as famous and as stolen as something out of the Gardner Museum, what would you do with it? Since you can't sell it and you can't publicly display it, where would you put it? What would you do? Go ahead and let us know, and we will see you next episode. We're going to be going straight into the gory side of Halloween, the slasher side, if you will. We're going to be looking at Artemisia Ganaleski's Judith Beheading Holoferns as part of the evolution of the story of Judith Beheading Holoferns in art history. And things will, in fact, get bloody. At least in our conversations of parabolic arcs. But stay tuned and keep on keeping on. Happy Halloween! This podcast was created, produced, written, hosted, edited, and fact-checked by master's graduate Celia Bugnow. Our upcoming music will be courtesy of Kelsey Weber. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms as well as your social medias.